not everyone can afford yoga classes and you know organics and all and we all would love to have that if you know if that's your thing but the idea is that most of us don't live in that world and the best you can do is still great to make any strides towards reducing chemicals for your body and for your kids bodies but you can't be judged for not having access you just have to have the workarounds which we try to create Hello, everyone, and welcome or welcome back to Mom Light, the podcast dedicated to helping you feel your best in body, mind, and spirit using cutting edge science, ancient wisdom, and everything in between, and the stories of my incredible, inspiring guests so you can live your best life. I am your host, Kanchan Koya, honored to be here. I'm a molecular biology PhD turned health and wellness warrior, passionate about educating and inspiring all of us to leverage the power of modern science so we can live a long, happy, joyful, disease-free life. And speaking of becoming disease-free and living a long life, today's topic is super important the toxins in our environment. I am so stoked to bring to you Dr. Ailey Cohen, who is just launching her new book. I love the name of this book, by the way, Non-Toxic. And this book is a framework, a starting point for any of us who feel like we want to do something about the chemicals in our food supply, our environment. We know they're not the best for us, but we feel overwhelmed and don't know where to start. And this book is the guide for that person. I consider myself in that camp, by the way. So I'm super stoked for my copy and I'm super excited to bring this conversation to you. Dr. Ailey Cohen is a triple board certified physician in internal medicine, rheumatology, and integrative medicine. And she's also a trained specialist in environmental health. She specializes in a variety of rheumatological ailments, as well as mental health issues, migraines, dementia prevention, diabetes, high blood pressure, elevated cholesterol, obesity, and women's health. And we talk about how many of these conditions are linked to exposure to toxins in our environment. Dr. Cohen received her undergraduate degree at the University of Pennsylvania. She went on to medical training at Hanman University Hospital School of Medicine in Philadelphia and completed her internship and residency in internal medicine at Beth Israel Medical Center in New York City. Dr. Cohen continued her specialist training in rheumatology and autoimmune diseases at Montefiore Hospital, Albert Einstein University Hospital in the Bronx, New York. She's currently in private practice in Princeton, New Jersey, a practice which she founded in 2011, Integrative Rheumatology Associates, focuses, and I love this, on both traditional Western medical management of rheumatologic ailments, as well as integrative options for total wellness, such as biofeedback, acupuncture, cognitive therapy, diet and exercise, counseling, environmental toxin counseling, smoking cessation, stress management, and sleep evaluations. Dr. Cohen is also trained in medical acupuncture from the Helms Institute at UCLA and environmental medicine from Dr. Andrew Weil and the Arizona Center for Integrative Medicine. I could go on and on. Dr. Cohen Ailey is the real deal. She is so knowledgeable. She's so practical and relatable. She dyes her hair, for example. So she talks about 
progress, not perfection, doing our best and being very empowered and very informed about what we're putting on our bodies, in our bodies, and really being conscious of how that affects our health. You're going to love this conversation. You're going to learn so much. I definitely did. Without further ado, I give you Dr. Ailey Cohen, the smart human on Instagram. Let's take it away. Ailey, welcome to the show. It's so great to have you on. Thank you for having me. Well, when this goes live, your book, Non-Toxic, will be out in the world. Congratulations. What a feat to put a book out in 2020, truly. Uh, honestly, it's, it's the optics are odd, but you know, life goes on and we have to keep moving. And ironically, or interestingly enough, the topic happens to be very connected to what's going on with COVID and you know, inflammation. So in a way, it's almost like a blessing that it happened at this horrible time. Not that we wanted it, but you know. Yeah, silver linings. Got to look for the silver linings. And I definitely want to talk about that connection between toxins and what's going on in terms of the health crises we're facing, because I don't feel like it's talked about enough. So, you know, why don't we just start kind of way back? You are an MD, classically trained, and you decided at some point in your career, seeing patients, to, I'm not going to say pivot, but to really expand your toolkit beyond the conventional MD training to a more integrative approach. And then not just an integrative approach, but really an approach that is so focused on toxins and becoming non-toxic as a way to optimal health. So tell us about that journey. Well, to be honest with you, to the you know how I got here is completely by just serendipitous because you know at first I went to into the integrative medicine approach because I always felt that there had to be other options besides medications and so when there was a free or I say a scholarship for the Arizona Center for Integrative Medicine for rheumatologists and they only give out I think one a year and I thought well okay I can't afford to pay for it but I can get the scholarship perhaps so when that happened it really opened the gates for me because I didn't have to pay for it. And I was in this amazing program and I could learn from the best of the best in integrative medicine, which is, you know, diet, nutrition, exercise, Ayurvedic, Chinese medicine, supplements, sleep, all of the things that are so critical to human health besides medications. And at that point, I was sort of getting into that. But what happened in terms of turning this more specifically into a focus of environmental chemicals was really that my dog became sick. And you know, when the dog became sick as a puppy with something called autoimmune hepatitis, and I couldn't understand how he could have gotten sick, I started thinking about his drinking water, his food could have been contaminated, his dog toys, his treats, plastics, what have you, pollution. We live in New Jersey, which is flooded with pesticides, I mean, among other states. And so when I started to explore why this beautiful golden retriever was getting so sick with such a rare condition, literally with dogs, it just opened up my eyes to all of the lack of regulation in this country for things that humans use every single day, be it food, be it drinking water, personal care products, cooking utensils, cooking containers. I mean, you just name it. I just kept turning around and saying, are you serious? Are you serious? And so it just kind of led me in a direction of why aren't we teaching this to humans? Yeah. Wow. You know, so many things you said struck a chord. First of all, you said integrative medicine encompasses nutrition, lifestyle, sleep. And it just made me feel like, I feel like all medicine should. I mean, isn't that like, yes, medications are crucial, but 
And I know that there, this is changing and there's a lot of classically trained MDs moving in a direction, incorporating these basic kind of life tools to optimize health, not just a prescription on a pad, but it just makes you pause and think, wow, like that is how it should be. So hopefully things yeah, are going to change. You're absolutely right. The question is, why isn't this not part of classical medical school training? And I think the answer, I mean, even now there's only upwards of five hours of nutrition training in a total of four years of medical school. And that's right now. I mean, mm-hmm. I think that's a disgrace. I mean, personally, I think that's a disgrace. But when you think about who's funding medical schools, who's funding residency programs, you can see that the bias is towards pharma industry. And I'm not against pharmacology. Trust me, I use these medicines as a rheumatologist every single day. And I thank God that they exist for my patients. Mm -hmm. You know, all the biologics and, you know, we use those. But the idea that it's so heavily weighted to medicinal therapies and not to any of the other really um, well-studied thousands of journal articles, uh, medical journals that are reputable, that have done studies on how sleep benefits brain health and cognition, how food chemicals can affect all, a variety of health conditions. Um, we just have so much in the Western journals that it just doesn't make sense that we're not implementing them in a practical way through training and or through clinical practice, like doctor's offices. Yeah, so here's hoping for change and grateful for doctors like you who have just taken the initiative to bring that into your practice. And then the other thing you mentioned was how you were completely shocked when you realized how unregulated the chemicals industry is. Do you feel like the U.S. is particularly bad at that compared to even other Western developed countries? Well, I think that was was one of the things that was surprising that the more I read about, you know, for instance, the cosmetics industry having taken out over now we're up to 1200 chemicals out of chemicals that are in cosmetics for European countries. And yet we don't do that in this country. In fact, some companies actually make two different formulations, shampoos and conditioners with certain ingredients for the U.S. market and then some for the European market. And it just goes to show you how people try to get around I and mean, some of these companies try to really get around, you know, extra cost added to uh, making safer products. Whether it is more costly or not, I don't understand entirely, but we do know that European um, community, their research regulations are more stringent. And mm-hmm. that's a fact. And then if you were to go to, say, Canada, another country where there are more regulations in terms of what they put into food chemical, you know, food chemicals into their products and personal care products. And then in the United States, of course, you know, California sort of leads the way, you know, and we always sort of look to California and Prop 65 and all the different types of things that they put on their list as toxic or harmful or potentially harmful. And I think that gives good warning to people that, that our environment matters, that what we do sit on in terms of chemicals in our couches and what we eat with and all those things actually get into our body and actually make a difference in terms of human health. So I kind of look to these areas when I'm purchasing things, you know, when I get an RO filter, for instance, or reverse osmosis for filtration, which we can talk about different types of filters, but mm-hmm. the company I, and I don't share names of companies because of the academic work I do. I don't, I don't talk about brands, but you know, we picked a company from California to buy that reverse osmosis water filter. It was like $300, but all the parts were made in the U S particularly the filtration portions, which often get outsourced to other countries. And so understanding how these things work makes sure makes you want to go towards the states and the companies that are really doing it right. 
And I think that's, it's a hard thing to do for people, which is why we put together this book. You know, we wanted to do the labor, do the work for people so that an average person with work or kids or, you know, sick family members or whatever we're dealing with now could actually just pick up a book and really get to the meat of what they should be doing to reduce chemical exposure. Yeah, totally. You know, I consider myself an informed consumer, very interested in science and health. But I will say when it comes to toxins and environmental chemicals, I get a little bit overwhelmed when I start to see all the sort of monsters looming out there. And so I just kind of give up mostly. I mean, I'm being totally honest and I'm, I'm excited to pick up your book because I feel like there's so much work that one has to do to just figure out where to start. So what, you know, what are people going to get from the book? What was your intention when you wrote the book and what can people expect when they pick up a copy, which I really hope they will, because I think it's such an important topic. Well, I'm hoping that they're going to, well, first of all, I'm just like them. I mean, despite a medical degree, I really do feel like I am one of everyone who's picking up this book because that's where I began this journey. I didn't know that these chemicals were not tested in personal care products before they go into products that end up on our shelves. Um, I didn't know there are over 3,000 food chemicals allowed to go into food that aren't even tested or are grandfathered in under a grass or, or generally regarded as safe heading, which means they really aren't tested very well, actually, in children and in compromise, that kind of thing. I didn't know so much that I looked at this book as, well, how would an average person like myself seven or eight years ago handle this broad topic that's, as you mentioned, intimidating, can be overwhelming, I mean, how can you live your life without freaking out, you know? Because my goal is not to freak out. I mean, I color my hair. You're looking at the screen with me. Um, <laughs> I read this in a TED Talk. I threw myself under the bus because I knew it was going to happen. You know, we all have choices. We all want to make choices that some, some may not be that healthy. But we bargain with ourselves as to which choices may be higher yield than others. And mm -hmm. this is still the choice I've made with my hair. And maybe I'll change. It's a journey. But I also feel like I've made so many concessions and so many changes in other aspects of my life, particularly high yield ones like drinking water quality or the types of foods I choose or the couches that I buy for my home because of flame retardant chemicals. I've stopped buying air fresheners of all kinds um, because of the phthalates and the volatile chemicals, organic chemicals that, that aerate off into your home. I choose cleaner, clean products. You know, I talk to my kids about candy and I just try to get them on maybe cleaner versions or maybe substitute candies. Doesn't always work. But the idea right. is that it's a journey and you, you want to hit each topic in a way that doesn't freak you out, which is where the book is. It's divided into chapters for people to really hit one nugget at a time. So a whole chapter on drinking water, what you need to know, why you need to care, and then what do you do about it? You know, personal mm -hmm. care products. What do you need to know, why you need to care? and then what to do about it. And that's that's kind of how I would have liked to have been informed back in the day, even seven, eight years ago. Yeah, you know that classic thing people say, you usually write a book that you wish was written for you. Um, so that's the kind of book it sounds like you've written, which is awesome. And, you know, before we get into some of the like what to do and how to go about it and some of the specific toxins and minimizing them, let's just step back and think about why it matters. So I know you mentioned the book talks about that chapter by chapter, but you're a doctor, you see patients. When did you start to realize that chemical exposure really matters when it comes to human health? Well, I would have to say that it wasn't so much in medical practice because you see patients very infrequently or 15-minute appointments. And so I could get a history, but it, I wouldn't always relate it to their exact disease. And remember, 
when people get sick, it's not just about the environmental chemicals. It's this dance between lifestyle, environment, genetics. So there's lots of things that go into whether or not someone gets sick. But that being said, you know, we do know that there are tremendous connections or associations between a rise in processed food uh, ingestion and, and diet and say increases in various chemicals or pesticides, for instance, as we all are kind of aware is that when you, when you eat certain foods that have higher amounts of pesticide residues, you can actually measure those levels in the blood and in the urine of people who are tested. And we see that also with like migrant farmers who's, who are themselves exposed because of their work, but also can bring that home into their home environment just because they're working in pesticide environments. So you know, I think I started to make the association from reading and then also attributing it to the fact that there's just so much more autoimmunity, autoimmune diseases in our population, and I'm a rheumatologist. So I started seeing younger and younger people getting thyroid disease, thyroid cancer, certainly breast cancer. I see in young people, it's, it's pervasive. And I start to see different types of um, inflammatory conditions, rheumatoid, lupus, that I really can make some connection perhaps to lifestyle. But again, it's a combination of factors. So mm -hmm. it took a while to understand, but also the reading, the understanding, the medical journals, the science that's so robust. Right. There's so much accumulating evidence that these exposures are linked to poorer health outcomes. Yeah. Um, so let's talk a little bit about inflammation because, of course, that's a huge overarching factor in cases that you see in your practice with autoimmune diseases. And it's also very much an overarching factor right now with COVID and the poor outcomes. And we talked about earlier in the session, uh, in the episode about the link between chemicals and inflammation. So what is the link between too much inflammation, inflammatory disease, and toxins in the environment? So to keep it as simple as I can, because it is quite complicated, even now that we know more about COVID, it changes every day. I mean, all the rules of COVID change pretty much all, all the time. But what we do know now about five, six months into this is that the people who do worse with exposure to COVID or coronavirus who are already having health conditions, comorbidities, heart disease, obesity, thyroid conditions, lung conditions, kidney conditions. So things that have already set them up for, you know, they're less robust and hardy in terms of their health. So comorbidities, people who get the infection tend to do worse. Um, whether they need hospitalization, ventilation, or even end up dying. It turns out even from data from Italy and from the United States now is that even it's, it's almost um, linear in, in the sense that the more comorbid conditions you have, actually the higher the risk of an inflammatory, severe inflammatory response from COVID infection. And the reason that may be is because many people who have comorbid conditions are already inflamed to begin with. They tend to be inflamed from their condition itself, but also because many of the chemicals in our environment lead to inflammatory um, status. So increase in inflammatory markers can be measured. So really the linear direction on this is that environment affects inflammatory status, leads to endocrine disruption and changing in our hormones which can also lead, of course, to obesity and heart disease and many uh, blood pressure, autoimmune disease, insulin resistance. Um, and then that actually sets people up for a worse problem when they're exposed. Anyone can get coronavirus, mm -hmm. right? We know that anyone can get it. You can be healthy, you can be sick, you can be anyone. Even animals are getting it, right? 
but it's the people with underlying conditions that are more inflammatory who may have had more exposure to environmental problems are the ones that actually end up doing worse. And so that's the goal as now is to see how people can use perhaps this fear of coronavirus and, you know, what we're seeing now with so many deaths worldwide to really take control over their lives, their diet, their air quality, their personal care products, and just, you know, rein it in a bit so that we can lower those exposures. Mm -hmm. And the link between environmental toxins and increased inflammation, is that facilitated by multiple mechanisms? Is there like a unifying mechanism that connects toxin exposure with elevated inflammation? Well, there's components of both the, what we call the innate and the humoral immune system. So there's very primal or primitive, I should say, immune system. And then there's the more developed immune system that we've evolved with for millions of years. And what we're seeing from the data is that really the body takes off in terms of a very primitive way to the virus. And then what happens is it becomes more specialized and more antibodies and cytokines, what we call cytokine storm sort of jumps in after it hits a certain point where the body can't uh, remove the toxin or remove the virus. And so we don't know what tips them, you know, people over specifically, Mm -hmm. um, but we know that this is at the cellular level, the inflammasome and all sorts of, you know, mitochondrial dysfunction. And then there's other contributors. It's not just chemicals, of course, that affect chronic disease. There's also nutritional effects. Vitamin D has been tested now in, in many of the sickest or, you know, the highest mortality cases and shown that vitamin D is very low in a lot of these conditions. And that may be tied into the fact that their diet and nutrition is poor to begin with. And it's not just the processed food chemicals, but also the, the lack of nutrition that's also associated with processed foods. Mm-hmm. And these chemicals um, that we want to be watchful for, I mean, are they potentially disturbing our microbiome? Is that sort of one of the launching pads for some of these inflammatory cascades to get activated. Um, yes. I mean, just trying to get people to understand why it's important to care, you know, from a mechanistic standpoint about these thousands, tens of thousands of unregulated chemicals in our lives, really. Right. Well, we've been evolving 4.5 million years. And the fact that we have over 90,000 industrial commercial chemicals on the market in everything we do just over the last 200 years is just really, you know, it's too much for the human body to manage. Mm-hmm. And one of the roots that you're, ta- you're discussing is, you know, the gut, which is about 24 feet of bowel. Um, and on that 24 feet of bowel are trillions of, of healthful bacteria, viruses, molds, just living happily together for millions of years. And then we come in to our modern day living and we're drinking, you know, chlorinated drinking water, which chlorine obviously kills off bacteria in our drinking water, but certainly can do that in our gut as well. Pesticides in the foods, on the fields, also get into our gut and kill off the good guys that are healthful and support the immune system through the gut. So, you know, there's different aspects. Um, Stress, right? Who thinks Mm -hmm. of stress as an environmental exposure, which we talk about in the book, but stress can change the pH, the acidity level of the gut and also not support a healthy gut microbiome. Mm -hmm. And so when you talk about sleep and stress and chemicals and you combine this, that's kind of like, you know, really where we're at with modern day living. Certainly not easy to fix stress right now, but something to think about and something to work towards. Right, right. That's interesting to think about it as an environmental factor. It is. (laughs) 
we internalize it and we do have more control, I think, than we realize. So if anyone is doubtful that chemicals matter, you know, <laughs> I would be surprised at this point. I mean, they really do matter in terms of our health outcomes and minimizing so minimizing exposure, not necessarily being perfect, but trying to make progress is really the name of the game. So given that people get overwhelmed and you've been in their shoes, what are some key areas that you think a novice who wants to build a more non-toxic life for themselves, their families should start with? You mentioned drinking water. So what would be kind of your top factors where you really like to focus, where there's massive bang for your buck, if you will? Yeah, no, I think this is a great question. Um, and we do a tear-off sheet actually in the book because these are the kinds of questions people like to have lists and work off of a list, um, especially high yield choices and lifestyle changes. The number one thing I start with is just don't buy the junk that we have been built to believe that our houses have to be cleaner and antibacterial all the time. And, you know, our house has to smell like wild orchids or lavender fields. Um, all of those flavored chemicals. I mean, I used to have a drawer. I kid you not. I used to have a drawer about nine years ago that was filled with every plug-in uh, flavor or, or odor that you can possibly imagine, you know, sea breeze and whatever, raspberry fields and what have you. I just dumped the whole drawer. I mean, most of the chemicals that are in these types of products have either never been tested for human health or if they have, they contain things like phthalates. Phthalates are chemicals that are in fragrance that are proprietary. You'll never know the actual ingredients, but we know as a class, phthalates are um, endocrine disruptors. So they, they affect thyroids, hormone, they can affect um, fertility, they can affect insulin resistance, so diabetes risk, they can affect obesity and fat cell growth or even the production of uh, fat cells from bone marrows. They can affect in terms of pregnancy, uh, which is a big group that I like to aim some of this information at. You know, it can affect actually androgen development, you know, hormones that affect boy-girl development, both in the brain and also the body parts. And it mimics estrogen. That's what these um, endocrine disruptors are known to, to be able to do. So again, these phthalates are just one class in one type of product that adds no benefit to human health. And so the number one thing I say is just don't buy some of these things to begin with. If it's not in your home, you won't be exposed to it. And it'll save you lots of money. Same with lawn care. You know, people try to keep up with the Joneses. If you live, you live, I guess, in the city and you people live in the burbs. You do not have a lawn, but I have plenty of friends who are yeah. in the whole lawn game. Yes, <laughs> the lawn game, it's, it's remarkable how people get obsessed with having a weed in their lawn. And, you know, quite frankly, we've probably never done any of that in 15 years because God knows we have enough in our, in our New Jersey air quality probably. But, you know, the idea of keeping up with the Joneses, getting rid of this stuff, or don't bring it in is a great place to start. Second thing is, as you mentioned, is drinking water. I believe, and having done this for a reasonable amount of time now, this has risen as sort of my biggest beef, is that drinking water in this country is really dirty. And whether or not it's on the news for Flint, which was horrible, we have lead contamination in Newark. We have con lead contamination across this country, um, but no one's paying attention to it or testing it enough or it's not getting airtime. But we have other chemicals that get into water, like non-stick chemicals, the PFAS chemicals, as people may have heard, from you know non-stick, Gore-Tex, um, Teflon. Those chemicals actually get into drinking water and they are forever chemicals. They don't even break down. So they do end up in our drinking water because 
our tap water or municipal tap systems are not built to remove many, many chemicals. So what I recommend is everyone should be filtering water and it doesn't have to be um, costly. You know, a lot of this book is directed at people who may not have tons of money to spend all the time everywhere. And I think that's important because um, you can do filtration with drinking water very easily with even pitchers or faucets um, using carbon filters or carbon blocks all the way up to the more extreme way of doing this, which would be the most extreme way is reverse osmosis, which is almost like a dialysis machine if people know what those are. It has to go through tremendous cleaning the water before it sits in a tank. And then that's what you drink out of from a little faucet that comes with it. They run $300, $250 to $300 under your sink now. I liken it to like VHS machines. If people listening are old enough to remember VHS mm -hmm. and beta, where they start out super expensive. And then now that you can get it for free. I mean, it's like, you know, the price just keeps dropping. Mm -hmm. But you want reputable companies that do a reverse osmosis um, water filter. And so we give resources for that as well in terms of consumer reports and what to look for. But the idea that water, which makes up 80% of our human bodies or our pets, human, I mean, our pets' bodies, believe it or not, because I think in terms of my pets as well, per body mass index, we consume more water than even food, if you think about it. Mm -hmm. We can live only about three days without water but we can live up to two weeks without food. So we really just need to think about water as critical to human health. Even in the most microscopic exposures, over time, these things can add up. So filtration is number one, or two, I guess, at this point. And then, of course, food, getting cleaner food, less processed, shopping on the outside of a supermarket instead of sort of the interior is always kind of a classic message. Mm -hmm. um, you know, those are really important. And now that we have frozen organics in big box stores that everyone can almost access really across the country, I really recommend buying flash frozen, which is what they're done. That's how they're frozen. And when they're picked, they're flash frozen. So they actually maintain all the nutrient value, if not more mm -hmm. than fresh vegetables, which may travel for six days and lose nutrient value as you know, along the way. Mm -hmm. So people don't think like that. And I never did until I, I learned about how food is food travels and actually starts to lose its antioxidant value. Mm -hmm. um, and soil quality is so, you know, variable um, that you want it flash frozen. You want as much nutrient value as possible. So on the water, um, I think that's great that people can start with the simplest kind of filter, evolve into something more complex, which has even that is becoming more affordable. Um, how do you feel about bottled water? Because I feel like something happened. I don't even know when. And suddenly it was like bottled water was a thing and everybody was buying bottled water and you have all these fancy brands and, you know, plastic bottles. Yeah. What are your thoughts? So, well, the studies, I mean, I like to not inter interject too much of my thoughts. I try to keep it more on the scientific level because, again, you know, I'm making these choices based on what I'm reading from, from real scientific evidence. We know that plastic chemicals leach from these plastic bottles. Um, we've known this for at least 15 years. And many of those plastic chemicals are also, as I mentioned earlier, endocrine disrupting chemicals. They are made with plasticizing components that the matrix is not strong enough to really stay intact like you would with you know, glass or stainless steel. And so they leach off, especially under conditions like heat or sunlight. Um, when you leave a, a plastic bottle in your car in, in the summertime, you know, people can actually taste a difference 
often they'll taste that kind of chemical flavor. So plastic bottles, besides not being great for the earth because of the recycling issues that we, we are managing, uh, plastic water bottles really should be avoided unless you're in a situation where there's flooding or hurricanes and this is really just what you need for the time being in an emergency. Right. But in, for the most part, I think when people buy something like a reverse osmosis water filter or a really top grade carbon filter system, uh, you know, pitcher or refrigerator filter, I think that it pays back itself from all of the bottles that people buy and bring home. In other words, it pays itself off very, very quickly within a few months so that you actually end up saving money by putting in a system um, like RO filters or, or great pitchers. So that's my recommendation is, is really try to stay away from plastic bottles. If we're traveling and you have, you know, I don't have an RO filter on my back. So when you're traveling, you're just, you know, you're taking what's available. But right. 80% of the time, being realistic, if you're home, or you're going to work, or you're going to soccer games, or you're going to school, you can actually fill up your water bottles, glass or stainless steel like my kids do. And so you know that the water that they're drinking is actually cleaner than probably what they're getting in the schools, which don't test their water regularly. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And also, um, I just wanted to say one thing, which is I didn't know, but you know, so many kid-friendly products like bottles and things are marketed as BPA-free, BPA-free. And I only learned later that, oh, just because it's BPA-free doesn't mean it doesn't have plasticizers that are also endocrine disruptors like BPS, for example. So BPA-free became this huge marketing clause and, you know, everyone was like, oh, it's fine because it's BPA-free. Yeah, you're absolutely right. I'm glad you mentioned it because that is true. What we have is what are called regrettable substitutions. And so you're taking a, a, a chemical that got a lot of attention, which I'm glad you brought this up specifically because my co-author for this book and for the last book, which was a textbook for Oxford, um, is Dr. Frederick Baumsall, who is actually largely responsible, his research and his colleagues around the world, uh, largely responsible for getting BPA out of baby bottles in the mm. U.S. Wow. So he is that hero that we don't often hear about these kinds of heroes, but he's that guy. And, um, and it was remarkable working with him. But, you know, essentially BPA was removed. It was marketed widely. And then all what happened is the chemical companies basically just came up with a very slight change to their molecule, to the monomer, and they basically made it BPS, BPFB, BPSIP. And what we're now learning, because it's whack-a-mole, right? We're, we're chasing after these chemicals um, to see if they're healthy or safe or toxic after they've already been used in our products, which mm -hmm. is different than in other places, particularly Europe, is that those actual substitutes are showing the same type of endocrine um, disruption and capability, if not worse. Again, it's, it's just a very, you know, it's a sad system where we're not able to get ahead of things by testing mm -hmm. it before they go into market. And I think that's what the laws are trying to do, but they just never succeeded. Big business wins. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Um, well, good to good to bring that up, and that's amazing that you co-authored the book with the BPA anti-BPA warrior. That's awesome. And then you talked about you know fruits and vegetables, shopping on the outside, uh, the outer rim of the grocery store. I love that. People often get confused, or sometimes like it's kind of a triggering thing to say, "Oh, you should buy organic vegetables and fruits." You know, people say it doesn't matter. Some people are like totally wedded to that dirty dozen list. So it only matters for the dirty dozen. Thoughts on dirty dozen and buying organic produce? Sure. 
So we have we work with EWG in the sense that we use a lot of their materials and resources, and they're excellent, um, and they're very vetted. And and um, I've done some programs in the past with them, so I've kind of gotten the backhand look of of really how they work, and they're quite quite good, and they're mostly toxicologists. That being said, I think you're right. I think it does trigger people because you know the world is not always about organic access to those foods, pricing to those foods. What we try to do in the book, again, is to really focus on whether or not you have access or not. These are the things that you can do. So Mm -hmm. for instance, conventional, which means non-organic produce and and vegetables um, and fruit, you can actually soak. And we give, you know, sort of the recipes of how to do this very simply soak in either, you know, one part white vinegar to three parts warm, clean water. You can use baking soda. And, you know, what you're trying to do is remove the outer coating, the residue of pesticides um, before you use it and cook it and eat it. And these have been shown to be very effective. We, we do a lot of referencing to show where we're getting this information. And that's really just to the point where, you, you know, not everyone in this country has has the ability to get clean food all the time and can afford it all, especially now with all our economic problems. So I want people to understand you still go clean with food quality in terms of what you pick, whole foods, fruits, vegetables that aren't processed, mm-hmm. but then just give it a little bit of time to soak and get off some of the top layers of chemicals that, um, and you'll see the water actually tends to look a little cloudy. You'll be quite shocked, I think, but either way is good. Either way is acceptable and, and perfectly helpful. Yeah, I live in Brooklyn. You would think you have access to everything, but especially now with COVID, I've been going to smaller stores, avoiding the big stores. I don't always find the vegetables I like in organic form. So I'll try to buy certain veggies, always organic, like and fruits like strawberries, I think, you know, tomatoes, things that are heavily sprayed. Like I guess bananas and avocados matter less maybe because of a thicker skin. Exactly. Right, right. So that's a good kind of framework. But then if I do buy something like cauliflower that's non-organic, I'll use the baking soda or vinegar wash. So I think that's really helpful and makes it a little bit more accessible for people who can't necessarily buy every single thing organic. Yeah, I think I think it's important to make sure that that messaging is out there because, you know, it all goes out to, you know, access to healthcare, access to clean food, health equity, environmental justice. I mean, these are all really pointing to the fact that not everyone can afford yoga classes and, you know, organics and all. And we all maybe would love to have that if, you know, if that's your thing. But the the idea is that most of us don't live under that kind of in that world. And the best you can do is still great. I mean, it's still great to make any strides towards reducing chemicals for your body and for your kids' bodies, but you can't be judged for not having access Um, You just have to have the workarounds, which we try to create. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I've heard naysayers say things like, my grandparents didn't bother about toxins and they lived into their 90s. We're all just, you know, getting all like flustered about something that isn't an issue. Like, are toxins in our environment on the rise, even compared to the previous generation, previous two generations? I mean, or was there something different about that generation in terms of their lifestyle or ability to handle the onslaught of toxins. I've heard this come up a lot, so I wanted to get your thoughts. I think that may be pointing to some of the topics around epigenetics where exposure during certain periods of human development actually matter. Mm. So in utero exposure is actually quite important because that's the template for your future health through your genetics. So we, you know, it's a really important to think about exposures of a pregnant mom during pregnancy because all of that can affect 
um, not just the short-term effects of the baby, the health of the baby, but also maybe even long-term effects in terms of risk for heart disease and cancers down the line. Because these chemicals have been known to change the genetics of those who are exposed, not just to the, those who are exposed, but actually several generations even afterwards, which is pretty grim when you think about it. Mm-hmm. But it really just means keep working at it. There's a whole chapter on getting pregnant, um, what to think about, how these chemicals may affect in utero exposure and what you can do, understanding the different stages of development. We have the most hormonal change during um, conception, during you know the creation of a human brain and human body um, in utero. But then there's also this amazing period of being a toddler all the way to age 18, which in teenage years, which is an enormous growth and development period, which these chemicals also can interfere with. And then of course, there's even menopause, which is another hormonally active time period. So Mm -hmm. vulnerability during hormonally sensitive periods of development matter, but not necessarily going to change your behavior specific, but I like people to think about that. Um, It's why I teach high school. Um, It's why I want to get this into schools across the country. Mm -hmm. Um, I want people to understand how endocrine disruptors actually are very key when it comes to raging hormones of teenagers. I think it's a really nice time to get this information in, you know, so we can all be a little bit healthier with our exposures. Yeah, that's such a key point about the stage of life mattering, some mattering more than others. And also just realizing, I think that, you know, chemicals have increased in our food supply, our environment, even in the last 50 years, you know, 80 years. So, And older people, just to make mention about how grandparents seem to be living to 100, their exposures at young age were much cleaner. They had cleaner in general. Those 90,000 chemicals weren't as active back then. Mostly that chemical boom came after the 1950s. Mm-hmm. Where we developed naugahyde and rayon and you know all the different plastics and plexiglass, all the food chemicals, all the new pesticides exploded after 1950s, the 1950s, after World War II. And so the people that were born, again, epigenetics, their exposures in utero and even to their young years were not nearly as extensive as what we're seeing now with young people being born into this chemical environment. And often they have cord blood, you know, that measures very high in terms of industrial chemicals. We know that. So, um, again, you do the best you can, especially in utero. And, and, and this is a book to help guide people to how to do that. Yeah. So amazing. So you talked about produce food, you talked about cleaning products and like air fresheners, you talked about water. What would be another really important thing that people could sort of start to think about? Sure. Well, something that people don't think about is radiation. So in terms of self, you know, now everyone's using 5G or wants to use 5G. Everyone's got technology because that's the only way we can communicate and engage with others right now. But I think there's a safe way to use technology. And we know this because people who use their cell phones in their pockets, men particularly, have lower um, sperm count. Internationally, these studies have been performed. Um, Also, poor sperm quality. So it's not just count, but quality. So we want to think about how are we going to use our technology, Bluetooth, 5G, all our tech gadgets that are everywhere now, how do we use them safely? Because they probably are not going away. And I love my cell phone and I, my kids have cell phones. It's just, how do we use them? So I'll give you an example. My kids, um, I have two boys, 11 and 13, and, you know, they were throwing their pop, their phones in their pockets a lot. And, and, you know, boys aren't so 
particularly, you know, careful with detail, but I told them, you know, you're going to fry your guys. I say, I want to be a grandmother one day. And so really what I try to teach them is if you're going to use your phone, uh, for whatever reason, I want it on airplane mode at night. When you go to bed, I don't want it near your head because of the radiation exposure that we know can travel deeper into children's skulls versus adults. Um, when they have games, I want them downloaded so they don't need to use cellular activity, that they're on their phones or their iPads or computers. Mm-hmm. And and really, the less they use it, you know, in terms of obviously social media and some of the attention issues, anxiety, depression, all that is certainly important. But the actual radiation is what I'm trying to get people to think about. Laptops, for instance. Laptops shouldn't be on your lap because they're an antenna, just like a cell phone. So if you have cellular activity on a, on a, on a, on a computer, which most of us do, that's going to warm up your lap and that tends to be directly related to very sensitive parts of the human body. Female genitalia, male genitalia, holding your cell phone in your bra is not a great idea. We now know lesions can grow underneath benign and cancer. So it's a matter of just using things safely and we give tons of information on this because um, it's a playbook that we all really need to uh, embrace as, as we move forward. I am pre-ordering the book now because I know it's not out yet while we're recording this, but sounds like such a valuable resource. And honestly, all of this, like we said earlier, can feel so overwhelming. So I'm just grateful that you've laid it out in a way for somebody who just wants to start to take some steps. So when we're thinking about toxins, I have to ask this before I let you go. You know, our bodies have some capacity to detoxify themselves, right? So we have you know, we can sweat out toxins, I guess. We could pee out toxins. We can poop out toxins. We have a liver. So how do you like to empower people, I guess, while everybody tries to minimize toxin exposure and to build a non-toxic environment to the best of their ability? How can we also support our innate kind of detox mechanisms? Yeah, we, as I mentioned, I think a lot about anthropology um, and we've evolved for millions of years to really manage a lot of the harmful things in our environments. So, you know, things that you're talking about in terms of natural detox, using the body's natural ability to remove many of these chemicals. And of course, we haven't evolved with these chemicals, so the body hasn't yet had a chance necessarily to catch up. But in general, we have a variety of ways that the body gets rid of chemicals or breaks them down to be less active. The, the liver has different, you know, conjugation phase one and phase two, and very complicated mechanisms by which they are able to break down certain chemicals, many of the industrial ones that are, that are available and, and in our lives now. So what I try to get people to think about in the, in the last chapter is all about detoxing from what you eat to, you know, how do you get rid of these chemicals? Mm. Right. Exercise, exercise and sweating. So exercise floods the liver with blood and it makes it move better and quicker and cleaner. Exercise is incredible for moving blood throughout the gut, which is incredibly great detox mechanism. I mean, our guts are actually uh, 24 feet of bowel, definitely immunologic, but certainly are part of cleaning out our system. I mean, that's how we move food through our body and get it out of our system. So you want to exercise because it also makes you sweat whether you can exercise physically or you need a sauna, sweating is really key because we can see some of these chemicals really come right out on the skin surface and wash out in our urine, through our kidney system. So again, exercise, which has been part of our existence, is number one. And it's great for mental acuity and cognition. and Right, so many other benefits. 
oh, yeah. you can't lose with exercise. If you can do it safely, and even a sauna, if you can do a sauna, just a conventional sauna, um, it's really remarkable how good people feel after those kind of sessions. But also clean drinking water, putting it into your body to flush out some of these chemicals. And a really key issue, which I talk about quite in detail in the book, is sleep. We now know from studies, um, even as recent as 2013, 14, that we have something called the glymphatic system. Many of us have heard of the lymphatic system, which takes a lot of excess fluid around the body and kind of distributes it. But we have the glymphatic system around the brain. And what that means is we can actually start to detox chemicals that get into our lives throughout the day. And during sleep, there's this system by which we clear chemicals. So, so sleep is not just beneficial for, you know, not feeling drowsy and for, you know, thinking clearly, not being kind of hung over, but it's really key to clearing chemicals that we accumulate or exposed to during the daytime hours. Yeah. So powerful. Love that list and love that it's a chapter in the book. Um, that's awesome. Wow, Ailey, thank you so much. Um, I feel like I've learned so much just chatting with you today and I know the listeners are going to learn a lot and I feel like something you've done really beautifully is take a very overwhelming topic and make it very actionable and non-overwhelming. And I'm sure your book does that. Cannot wait for my copy. Thank you so much for writing it and for the work you're doing as a conventional doctor, really expanding your toolkit and your ability to help people in myriad ways using all these powerful interventions. So just really want to thank you for your work and thank you for being here. Thank you so much. And if people want to listen to more nuggets of health and wellness information, I post on The Smart Human, which is my baby, my, my educational platform for environmental mm-hmm. health. And that's on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, The Smart Human. Also, we have a new podcast that's launching, which is not an easy feat, as you know, with your beautiful podcast. So yeah, any, anyone wants to listen to more details or more regular kind of great information, just you know, log on or, or follow. We'll link that in the show notes and good luck getting this amazing, important content into high schools and schools. That's so incredible. That's amazing that you're doing that and can't wait to follow the trajectory of that. So thank you so much again, Ailey. Good luck with the book and everyone pick up your copy of Non-Toxic. And thanks again. I will see you soon. Okay. Thank you so much for having me. It was a pleasure.